HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This program is made possible thanks to the generosity of our listeners. Show your support at heritageradionetwork.org slash donate. This week on Meet and 3, we're talking about comfort food as we explore its history, meaning, and different interpretations from around the world. Donburi is just a simple, casual dish, but it's packed with the history. Somebody might have their comfort food be something that they remember eating at their friend's house, but they would never have at their own home. Consuming foods that were eaten then can bring back some of those feelings from, from those times. It's about creating these little breaks and moments during the day where you kind of feel present. Tune in to Meet and 3, HRN's weekly food news roundup, wherever you listen to podcasts. the Grape Nation, your weekly wine journey. Our guest is Joel Gott. We'll talk to Joel about food, wine, Napa and beyond. We'll taste a Joel Gott cab and we'll taste a Pinot Gris from Oregon. I'm your host Sam Ben Ruby. Stay with us for the Grape Nation on the Heritage Radio Network. We bring wine to the people. Joel Gott grew up around wine in California. He's a fifth-generation winemaker, producing his wildly popular, eponymous Joel Gott wines from California, Oregon, and Washington with his wife, Sarah. Joel, along with his brother, Duncan, I hope that's still true, Correct. Uh, also runs Gott's Roadside Stand, a legendary food stop in Northern California. These days, Joel's a busy guy, expanding his wine and restaurant holdings, along with his eye towards giving back a little. Welcome to the Grape Nation, Joel. Thanks, Sam. Excited to be here. Yeah, thanks for coming in. Um, our friend Frank uh, had reached out and told me you were in town, and I didn't even think twice about putting you on the air, because I think you have a great story. 
And that's a good segue, because what I want you to do is I want you to talk about your journey in life and wine that got you presently to, you know, Joel Got Wines and, you know, the Gotts Roadside Stand and all that stuff. So take me through it. It's, it's, it's an interesting story because you come from a wine family, your wife. So tie everything together for us. Sure. I mean, um, I grew up uh, all around wineries. Um, my dad was a winemaker, same with my grandfather, great-grandfather. And so first memories are growing up at a winery called Montevini up in the Sierra Foothills. I was born in Napa and St. Elena, and then we moved up in the 70s to uh, Amador County. My dad started a winery called Montevini. So those are the early memories, um, being out in the vineyards and the winery. Why uh, does he bolt that in Napa to go up there? Um, graduated UC Davis, was working for my grandfather at Inglenook, um, also worked at Sterling before Sterling was even up on the hill when it was still right. down at the base, uh, worked uh, all over with a gang of guys that are still, you know, the old cronies, I call them now, in the industry that are still active. And um, my mother's father wanted to invest out of the banking business and buy a winery. And at that point, everything in Napa was too expensive. Even kind then. Of, hard to believe, right? right. Uh, so they fun. went up to Amador County and bought a 500-acre ranch up there. It was called the Masoni Ranch that was uh, vineyards that were planted in the, and I, I won't get the exact dates right, but 1885 through like 1890-something. Wow. Um, all Zinfandel uh, planted by the Italians for home winemaking in Sacramento. So we moved up there. Uh, Dad got started making. How old were you? Uh, I was probably two or something. Oh, you were tiny yeah, two kid. to ten. Yeah. So you know, okay. I had some very core memories up there, and that's really what, um, like, when I think back, that was the beginning of being fascinated, mostly with viticulture because trucks, tractors, grapes, you know, Land. dirt. Yeah, it was amazing. Um, and then my dad uh, left there. We moved down to uh, San Luis Obispo. He worked at a winery. It was called Lawrence Winery got a new owner they changed the name to corbett canyon and they got known for making inexpensive wine um and that lasted a couple years and then seagram's came along and made him an offer that he couldn't refuse so we moved to monterey and went to carmel high school then for my great education at carmel high um and he worked at monterey vineyards um and that went well and then we moved from there back to napa I didn't go to college. I went to uh, work straight out of high school at a place called Kenwood Vineyards for an amazing guy named Mike Lee. Um, and Mike basically was school of hard knocks with winemaking. What year are we talking now? That would have been approximately ni- no, 1989, 1991. Okay. <clears throat> Great vintages. Yeah, Kenwood had a good reputation in those days. It, w- it was really incredible. At that point, the family still owned it. It's been sold twice since then. Unfortunately, Mike passed away, but an amazing guy. And uh, he taught me a lot. It was a uh, learned everything from having to write work orders on yellow notepads to being his driver. Right. <laughs> everything. So what happens after that? So then um, I did the typical young 20-something. I worked a year in a ski industry so I could ski. You got out of the hole. Yeah. <laughs> I yeah. bar I bartended for a year. And then my dad pulled the ripcord on that. And So wait, you don't go to college? And you're just screwing around. Yes. You getting any crap from your parents? Oh, yeah, yeah no, that's he, he, he pulled the plug on that real quick. Oh, he did? Okay. So, you know, I had one winter and one summer that I wasn't <laughs> okay. under his thumb. All right. So then uh, he lent my brother and I $4,000 to buy the inventory of a local hippie grocery store in Calistoga. Because what that meant is, is that we both would have to work there or else we wouldn't be able to make payroll. Um, and it kept us contained. So he set you up. Yes, yeah. It was, it was the ultimate gift, $4,000 jail. <laughs> um, you were locked inside the store. So that's when, you know, uh, was it an established 
It was like your corner hippie grocery store. It had a little teeny wine section. It had a little deli. It had a, some some natural foods on a shelf and some Did beer. you see upside to it or you were like, ugh, what are we doing here? I didn't know any better. I look back at that and I, I had no idea what it, I had no idea. Okay. I got in there and it was just, you know, it's kind of like spinning top. Once you're in motion, you're fine. But before you're in motion, you fall down. So we got in there, and it was it was everything that we loved. We knew food because we grew up in a house that everybody was a cook. I'd worked in restaurants in high school to pay bills. So the deli thing was easy. Uh, finding groceries to sell was great. We had a big produce section, so I was a buyer. Drive to San Francisco a couple days a week at 2 in the morning and buy produce at the produce market. So it was really engaging. We had a great little wine selection, and this is the early 90s in Napa. So a lot of new brands, a lot of new winemakers. Um, we sold a lot of French wine, a lot of Kermit Lynch, um, Bruce Nyers. Um, sure. Yeah, yeah, pushing, pushing so the French wine So it sounds like you liked it and you got it going. and It was amazing. You know, you took away a lot from it. I mean, if you had to look back and look now and then, the things you got out of the market thing, what would it be? Uh, you know, it was work ethic, um, learning to invent on your own, learning that there are no rules, you know. Right. There's no reason that you can't make something. You just got to read about it. So that taught us a lot. It, but what it did, did for me... Did you and your brother get along? Oh, yeah, yeah. We I battled mean, that, like brothers. Yeah, you know, but... Slug each other whenever possible. Okay. The, the, the other education that I got out of it that really helped me with my wines is I learned retail wine. Remember, this is small scale, you know, a few hundred selections. But I understood how pricing worked. And that was my exposure to like, oh, wait a minute, there really is something to the price points. And that's honestly, when I started making wine, I knew that I wanted to sell Zinfandel for 15 bucks and Cab for 18 and Sauvignon Blanc for 14. It was like, because they were baked into my head from having a little retail, because those were the wines that sold. Sounds funny, but. We'll get to that, because that affects your first wine, but that was the inspiration. Those type of wines, that type of price range, accessible to you and all of that. Yeah, it was Ridge, and there's cheap ridges in for 18 bucks. It was amazing. Mm, I wish now. Was that place ever like like an Oakville grocery where it sort of became a little destination? People knew you had a cool wine selection and you made some good sandwiches or had... Yes, uh, Oakville Grocery was led by Steve Carlin at the time, and that was at its heyday, and it was amazing. So we'd go down there and copy everything. I remember <laughs> I, I came here to New York. I'd never been. And uh, we first time then first time I was probably at twenty two or something. My dad brought us. I think just brought me or maybe my brother along too, and we went to Dean and Deluca. Ah, and I'd never seen terrific. Yeah, oh, I stole every idea. The one down in Soho. Yeah, yeah, yeah stole Broadway. every idea. Yeah. I think I went. I bought a disposable camera so I could go in there and secretly <laughs> take funny. photos. There's nothing wrong with stealing a good idea. Yeah. Well. So anyhow, yeah, we were kind of like the uh, junior league Oakville Grocery of the North. Okay. All right, so you do that for how long? Uh, from 2000, sorry, from 1993, we had we closed it in 2007. Wow. So we, we had a long run there. Wow. But a lot happens oh, yeah. in between. So yes. take me, I guess the next big story is... You well, I can step them out in your blocks. I know it well. Go ahead. So 93 was the market. 96 is when Sarah and I started making wine. 99, I started Taylor's. So wait, let's stay with 96 for a second. So let's talk about Sarah. Sarah was your girlfriend or wife then? Oh, girlfriend, yes. Okay, and we'll get more into Sarah yeah. and who she is and how important she is. But you started the winery or your wine company it, label? It's going to sound bad because I'll make it, but God honest truth. So 
um, have girlfriend that's an enologist. So I've got my dad's working at Sterling at the time. So you're like access. the weak link, <laughs> right? No, completely. <laughs> yeah. I had access to barrels, yeast from my dad. I have a girlfriend that can write work orders because she's enologist over Joseph Phelps. My friend Rudy Zudima, who's a winemaker in Napa Valley, was working at a custom crush winery called Bienesary. So I had everything I needed, and I got in the mail. Kid you not? You remember when in the '90s you'd get a, you know the credit card in the mail with a book of checks with it. Right. So that's how I paid for the grapes. That's how I paid for the barrels. I paid for everything that way. Um, and that's literally what got me in. I convinced Sarah. I was like, just five tons is in. No big deal. We'll make it in our spare time. So get specific for a second. Where did you buy the Zin from? I mean, who was it? So and being, looking back now, are they still there? Or? Oh, yeah. No, it's still there. Unfortunately, that vineyard was a really old vineyard in the last decade. It's basically died. Um, it was from a guy named Tom Dillion up in Amador County on Steiner Road, a vineyard planted in, again, the late 1800s, like a lot of that area was. Amazing Zinfandel, head trained. Um, and so our very first vintage was 300 cases of Zinfandel in 1996 uh, from Amador County. The vintage year was 96. Mm-hmm. Correct. And it got good notices, right? Uh, the ni- So 96 was basically never released until I had made the 97 already. Then I got the license, but it ninety seven is the one got that got the us attention. In, yeah, I got the spectator cover and stuff. So that was crazy. So at that point, did you know this is what we're doing, or it just seemed all over the place? It was a project in your backyard for fun that all of a sudden spun out of control. You know, and then for the next decade, we couldn't make enough wine. No matter what we made, we were sold out in hours. I'd call a distributor, like here. And, they say, okay, I can give you 355 cases. Like, great. And I call them again a year later with the next one. You know, there was way less competition then than now. Correct. There were a lot of guys on the ground, less guys on the ground. What What was the allure? I mean, because it was small. I mean, you had some rep, you and Sarah. I mean, what connected that made it go to the next step, the next step, the next step? It's all Sarah, all wine quality. I mean, we, it was just great juice. Yeah. So what we had was for is, a great value price. Yes. So we had inexpensive wine that was really well traditionally classically made that was unlike a lot of the shock wines that were of the time. Right. Are we talking about the period where, you know, high alcohol? Correct. Like the the parkerization of Napa, which was a good 15, 18-year run. So you were playing out of that box as much as you could. And Parker's been great to us. So, I mean, I had nothing to take away from him. We were just of a different style at the time. Yeah. I, I think your wines would fall under something that he would like. But I don't think you were making wines for him, for him, which yeah. it seemed like some people were. All right. So that's how the winery gets launched. We'll talk a little more about that. Um, so at what point are you sitting there? How many vintages? Like, hey. We're like a legitimate wine company making real wine here. You know, the big turning points, I would say, was in 99, um, I saw the first success of making Cab, and that blew me away. So third vintage, we made Cab, and, you know, like our, we had a distributor here, we had a distributor in California, and it was beyond, <clears throat> you know, they, they'd do anything to get it. I couldn't believe it. <clears throat> you know, when we were, it was $18 Cabernet. Um, and then again in 01, 01 was another game-changing year. Um, just uh, we, we were making a ton of wine by then. You know, we had 
five folded. It was just me. Sarah was the head winemaker at Phelps. You know, nighttime bedtime so conversation she's was. Is, she would scribble out a notepad for me of suggestions, and then I would edit it to what I thought was right. And then I would take it into a custom crush winery and write it out. And the lady would look at me and say, "Her name's Christy Coford's a wonderful woman who runs Napa Wine Company." She'd look at me and say. I know you can't answer my questions. Should I just call Sarah? <laughs> uh, yes. Wow. Yeah. That's crazy. That's great. Um, so doesn't the, um, doesn't the food restaurant thing pop in sometime Yeah, so 96 there? was the winery. 99 was the first restaurant. It, it sounds like in a good way you're all over the place and things are mm-hmm. really going in the right Why? Why do the food thing? Is that where the market had an influence or not necessarily? Yeah, no, I mean, there was just the old hamburger stand in our town of St. Helena was closed again. Taylor's? Yeah, Taylor's Refresher was closed again yet for the 10th time. And, you know, it was like a place where you could hear the microwave go off when they served you a burrito. It was horrible. So we got it, um, and we got it because I wanted, uh, eventually we wanted to plant vineyards behind it, but it was all about, like, could we revitalize? Was that your property behind uh, it? or yeah, you we, were... Well, we had a lease there. Okay. Um, I still do, because um, it's 12 acres in downtown. So anyhow, um, we got it. We decided we would remodel it. Um, you know there's a distributor named Wilson Daniels? Sure. The, you know, Romani Conti. Yeah. So there's a guy named Jack Daniels who was the Was he Daniels, the Daniels of Bourbon? But not Jack Daniels of Bourbon. Yeah, yeah. Um, and Jack literally lent us the money to do it. Um, to Didn't want anything other than his money back in 24 months and a meeting every first Monday of the month to tell us that we were idiots, to make sure that we were actually working. I say that in a bad way. Um, And uh, so we got in the restaurant business out of just pure love of trying to revitalize something. We had no idea what we had stepped on. It was one of those moments of we opened up to a massive line day one, um, and we've been fortunate 20 years later, and it hasn't gone away. So part of that was location, right? Buzz. Menu. And nobody, but nobody had tasted the food, and they were lining up. Correct. Once they took a bite, it was over. I mean, you had them. Well, we and we got some big reviews that first season. Parker being one of them at the back of the magazine, he wrote up his top meals of the right. year. It was Taliban, French Laundry, and us. Did you serve wine from this store? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Duckhorn Sauvignon Blanc, all that stuff. Um, um, could you have done it without Daniels? I, I don't know how I would have gotten the money. We had So saved, he was a key guy, cheerleader? Yeah, we'd saved up $100,000, and we thought somehow thought that that was going to pay for a remodel. $400,000 later. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah right? We're not talking about, you know, a big blown-out thing. We're talking literally about 600 a square foot roadside stand and all. Yeah. yeah, you better be deep in capital and all that. Um, all right, let's stay with the wine. But just tell me one thing. Anything you did at the beginning or you're doing now... I mean, anything your grandfather or dad did, and even Sarah, you know, that influences how you do your business. I mean, I think you sort of implied work ethic, which is as important as anything from your dad. Um, Well, I think everything that we do, right, is we try to take a, I don't know how to say it correctly, it's like a a realistic path to what we're trying to do and try to do it as classically and cleanly as possible. That goes from our winemaking style to what we do in the restaurant. Um, I, you know, um, it's kind of like how we do all the three thieves wines. Everything is very, we like to think classically made, nothing extreme. Um, we like bang for the buck, the high end of the low end or the low end. But of the you're high end. saying that, does that t- 
touch on, you know, what your dad and granddad were thinking or doing necessarily? Well, not really because my dad started uh, Zinfandel Winery in the 70s because that was kind of the, you know, that was the beginning of the Zinfandel era, right? right? Joel Peterson was making incredible stuff then. And so my dad was on the forefront of that. But then he got into the corporate world of wines. He's a consultant today to helping people buy wineries and get in and out of the wine business. My grandfather, I never really knew him well enough when he worked for Hubline, when he worked for Inglenook. Right. Um, I just knew him as the guy who wore a top hat and smoked green more cigarettes. <laughs> um, and we drank wine, you know, when he went there in little teeny glasses. So I, I don't have the cut of that stuff. I, I get that. But Sarah certainly. Oh, yeah, without a doubt. You know, I mean, I think the signature of what you're doing, her name's all over that. It's really Sarah's philosophy on winemaking as to where we are today. Uh, every bottle is Sarah. Sarah so you have to take that to the next level. What is that philosophy? Um, clean, classic, and blended. What Sarah really likes, for instance, with Cabernet is, is you can have one vineyard and you can make a really good cap out of that. And there's some amazing places like Spotswood or right. Schaefer. Or name name the icons. Heights of or yeah, yeah, the super icons. Geographically positioned, perfect vineyards. We don't have any of those. So what we look at, or like what Sarah learned at Phelps, is you have a bunch of different vineyards, and you work on blending those microclimates together to make the most um, complicated, um, structured, um, depth wine you possibly can. So you guys are all about blending. Mm -hmm. You've become master blenders, um, if that's the right term. Didn't you initially want to make single vineyard wines? We did. We thought it would be great because we had a single vineyard Zin, I had a single vineyard Sauvignon Blanc. I had carried all this stuff. it to the caps. Yeah, but it never really like what what we learned was is we made them and they were fine. But I always loved the the value, right? And so when you can buy an eighteen dollar bottle of eight one five or twenty dollars or whatever it is here. It's so much more in the bottle than the single vineyard, and we didn't have the great, you know, we don't have any of the Madrona fruit or you know, like right. name one of the icons. So, right. we, Beckstoffer or yeah. Crane or any of that. Well, actually, there's quite a bit of Beckstoffer. There. Is there? <laughs> okay. Um, so, so what we what we focus on is like how do we shop the whole state of California and blend things so that they're surprisingly dense and structured and have amazing tannin structure and fruit structure that you don't find anywhere near that price point. So when you think of blending, you think of champagne, you know, the big champagne houses create a house style from blending, you know, Krug's not going to be far from what it was or, you know, the other guys. Um, Is that your intention or you want to take the best of what's available and it'll be not a different wine, I would say that our wines vary more vintage to vintage than the majority of the people that are around our price point. And that is because we try to make the best wine from the vintage, not a blueprint of every year. And, you know, at the size we are, that, that sounds scares, right. it scares people, but that's Mother Nature. That's what we want to be doing. Right. Um, does blending give you the opportunity to hide a bad vintage i hate to say bad vintage no but but you can't really hide a bad vintage you can try to work your way around it with using more riper fruit from the north part of the uh, north part of california or maybe you've got you know i don't name another problem right you've had rain 
Um, so you can definitely, because we have so many vineyards spread out over the state, you can manipulate your blending pattern for that. And Elisa, who's our head winemaker, Elisa Jacobson, she's really good at shopping the state, if you would. We have right. 200 different contracts throughout the state of California. Um, tell me about that. Obviously, you don't own any. We do own. Uh, small. Yes. But 200 acres out of, you know, that's... 10% of what we farm. Which is a tribute to how big you are and mm-hmm. how you've kept hold of quality. I mean, anybody in Napa would die for, you know, in that mm-hmm. area, wherever it is, would die for 200 acres. But, I mean, you're, you're doing a lot of stuff. All right, so let's talk about... I think people are getting little pieces of this. You're not the conventional conventional winery. You're not driving up to this big Mondavi building mm-hmm. and getting the tasting room and a tour of the barrel room, and there's you know, 20 wines and all that. that That's not how you do it. How do you do it? Because you just said you contract, mm-hmm. lease both, yeah, correct. tons of vineyards and all of that. So I mean, take, take me on the process. We, we literally have to go from vineyard and why you're at that vineyard, what's there, how that travels mm-hmm. to the bottle. So here, the best way I can explain our model of the way that we make wine, and it's been from day one, we don't own a physical building that is the winery. We have one uh, that the Trinqueros let us use. It's in Yontville. So that's our home base. So that's winery one out of 11. And so what we do is geographically in the Napa area, all that fruit goes to that winery. Then we have a winery that we use that's on Zinfandel Lane. Geographically, all that fruit goes there. Santa Barbara, San Luis Obispo. So we have these wineries that we basically bring the fruit as close as possible to that winery. Or the winery is close to those vineyards, and that's where that fruit is fermented. Post-fermentation, then we bring all the fruit, all the, at that point, wine, back to Napa, and that's where we start our blending and aging process and our bottling process. So, for instance, on a Monday in August, we're picking Sauvignon Blanc in Monterey. The winemaking team based in St. Helena has a winemaker down in Monterey at Monterey Vineyards. is a custom crush winery we use there. We will have one of our vineyard people go to that vineyard, make a call, say, okay, the vineyard's ready to pick. We'll schedule the picking with the viticulture company. That fruit will be delivered to Monterey Wine Company, where it will be received by the Monterey Wine Company winemaking employees there. But our winemaker's on site who's written written the work order, provided any of the data that we need for it. Then samples are brought, and then all of that every day during harvest is driven back up to Napa, where Sarah, Elisa, Nicole, Jill will be tasting the wines. South Coast team, we've got another winemaking team in an office in San Luis Obispo that'll manage all that fermentation down in that area. So I guess from August to October, Sarah is... Sarah and Elisa. Out of our mind. <laughs> they're just tasting fermentations. Over. Elisa's out in a lot of the vineyards making the picking calls. Sarah and Nicole. So everything, are, not everything, but you've delegated. Correct. She'll make some calls. Sarah will make some calls. There's just correct. too much. Correct. But you well, have the people that you we trust to make the an call. an amazing viticulturist named Mitchell Klug. Mitchell is out in the vineyards making picking calls. Another guy named Patrick, who's new to the team last year, he's out in the vineyards making picking calls. Taryn in San Luis Obispo. So there's, there's a big network. So the picking call is made. And then Sarah and Nicole and Jill are sitting back at the winery in Napa, and they're tasting all the samples coming from 
grapes and the wineries during the fermentation process, deciding if though it's going to ferment longer, if we're going to add something to it, or if we're going to rack it, if we're going to do more pump overs, all the winemaking is decided every day and then transmitted back to the winemaker on site. So that system offers you the opportunity to go wherever you think the best grapes are. Correct. And because you blend, the more diversity... The more diversity we have, we can skate around problems that are presented by Mother Nature. Which is one aspect. The other is to make some of the most interesting wines yeah. because of you know all of that. We think all those parts equal a pretty interesting sum. Um, one part I don't get is I see the regions and how where and how is it bottled. So everything right now, this time of the year, um, we've drug almost everything back from all the other wineries. To uh, Trincaro has an amazing facility in downtown St. Helena. And at that facility, we bring everything back. Uh, we have 14,000 barrels there. So things are being put to barrel. Things are being taken out of barrel right. to make room for that. Things are going into tanks. Sauvignon Blanc was blended right before Christmas. So now it's in cold stabilizing tanks where you get the wine really cold to drop out any acid that will fall out of solution. And it will start to be bottled at the end of January right after we start bottling the rosé, which was blended right before that. And then right now, we're taking the 2018 Cabernet out of barrel, and we're putting the 2019 Cabernet into barrel. And then we'll start blending the 2018 Cab. It's funny you bring up Trincaro. That's an yeah. interesting story, because your first wine was a Zin, and your dad mm -hmm. made Zin. Here's a guy who made a wine, screwed up, created white Zinfandel, and the rest was history. Right. Like they say, just... <laughs> You know, among many other things that they've done and, you know, how they've grown and all that. But Bob Trincaro rewrote the book with that one. Yeah. he's a, We had him on this show. He's a wonderful guy. Very interesting. Um, he had a great story. Um, we're going to take a break in a few minutes, but I want to delve into this with you. Talk to me about your practices, how you view, handle, sustainability, <laughs> uh, intervention, organics. I mean, it sounds like the type of wines you're making are very well thought out, but how does, there's a big movement towards natural wines, yep. sustainability, the valley in California, you better think about that. Where are you at as Joel got wines? So we encourage, with Sauvignon Blanc would probably be the one that we encourage organic growing by all of our growers as much as possible. Um, Why? Because um, a lot of times if the vines are managed right, you don't need to spray anything. Okay. Um, so it's just easier. Yeah. Do I mean, it right and you don't have the problem. Well, well, and also the growers spend less money. No. Most growers don't like to spend more money. They want to spend less. With labor prices going up every minute, right, as they should, it's harder and harder to find an area for a grower to save money. So in easy years like 2017 where there wasn't very much mold pressure, there wasn't very much pest pressure, all these things, a lot of the vineyards can be farmed organically. So our... Our dream would be is three, four, five, ten years from now, you know, kind of like you ever buy a cliff bar and you look on it and it says, this is 78% organic, you know, raw materials. I love it, right? Because they're actually paying attention. And so it would be really cool if we could figure out a way on vintages where there wasn't mildew or something to say, you know, this is, or grown, all the grapes for this wine were grown organically. You know, maybe it's 92%. I don't know what the percentage would be. So that is would be that really exciting. Is that necessary? Is that important? Is that where you want to be or have I, to be? I, As a consumer, I would find it interesting. 
I love I love that idea. We're not there yet. The industry's not there yet. You know, Bonterra's done a good job with making right. organic wine. Not organic wine, sorry. Organically grown grapes. Organic right. wine is really difficult because of the use of sulfur for stabilizer. Yeah, but I mean, even in the natural wine world, a certain amount of sulfur is accepted. Correct. It depends on how much. Yeah. I mean, and we, we believe in pretty low sulfur rates. Right. And you can see that in the wines. So we also don't add anything to the wines that are any of the stabilizers either. What about sustainability? You're not blowing through a big carbon footprint, right? No. I mean, you have an eye towards... So what we try to do is you try to eliminate... Pro- that's one of the reasons the way that we make wine the way we do, so that we are hauling, because you got to haul fruit around California, right? So we are trying to do it in the most efficient way. That's why we're not hauling grapes up, because you can only move roughly let's just say 3,000 gallons worth of grapes, but you can haul 6,500 gallons worth of wine. Right. So we try to do it in the smartest way possible whenever it comes to that less truck trips, less, um, basically less wear and tear. And that's also the way that we're making the wine is we're not trying to do, we're not trying to do a million additives. We're into process and technology with the wine, super technical ways of filtering. This is in the cellar. Correct. So that would obviously be the next question. Now yeah. in the cellar, you, you're you not into start We're not adding chemicals. Okay. <laughs> that always scares us. And so so if it's a bad vintage and the acid's not great, you're not going to pour on the acid? No, no, no. I mean, you you would add something like citric acid or something right. something natural. But we, we don't believe in adding all these um, what we call junior winemaking tricks. Um, we like the idea of technology in the cellar. There's a lot of technology that's come out of Europe and out of... Give me uh, a prime example of that. Um, there's a technology, a uh, little cross-flow filter or something you hear a lot of, which wineries have gone away from using DE, diatomaceous earth, for filtering. Um, not only that, there's resin filters. So a lot of technology is helping people make cleaner, more stable wines without adding something to it and also not adding something like diatomaceous earth. Right. 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 So if if you're going to filter, mm-hmm. that's a better way to filter. Correct. Because some people don't want to filter, but that's yeah, a whole no, other. Yeah, no, and I, we don't like to do heavy filtering uh, either, but we will, like on the Sauvignon Blanc, we have to filter it. Um, you know, it has to be, we put that through a cross flow. Um, same with the 815 Cabernet. Right. Um, just so that we don't end up with something scary in there. Do you think, because of the diversity of vineyards and because you blend that also gives you you know an opportunity to make the wines you know where you don't have to manipulate them Mm -hmm. the blend changes yeah i mean i would say the best way to describe that is all of our wines are dry meaning we don't add any sugar and that's usually the number one supplement to when you have too acidic of a wine or too cold of a vintage our blending allows us to blend to the profile that we want um, without adding concentrates or sugar. So Sarah likes dry wines. Yes. All right. Yes. Um, Joel, we're going to take a break. We're talking to Joel Gott. Joel Gott is the proprietor of Joel Gott Wines. He's also the mind behind uh, Gott's Roadside Stand. We'll talk about that a little more. You're listening to The Grape Nation on Heritage Radio Network. We'll be right back. All of us at HRN have been keeping busy, despite working and recording from home. This fall, we're proud to announce new shows on the network that each bring important 
and enlightening stories to listeners around the world. While the world is in turmoil and the future of our country is uncertain, there are certain constants that help keep us going. For us, food and storytelling are essential. While we can't come together in person, food podcasts from HRN provide a virtual table we can all gather around. Bringing exceptional stories to your ears and keeping you informed on the ever-changing political and environmental issues of our time is integral to our mission. At a time when the world around us is rapidly changing, HRN is committed to being here for our listening community, and we need you to be here for us. Join our table and help ensure the future of food radio by becoming a member of HRN. Go to heritageradionetwork.org donate to make a contribution. Check out the latest additions to our lineup while you're there. You can see all of our series at heritageradionetwork.org slash new show. All right, we're back. We're back with my guest, Joel Gott. Joel is uh, the proprietor of Gott Wines. Um, and Joel, I want to talk to you uh, about the wines. Um, I think initially when we talked about it, you were making a Zinfandel, and then you talked about a cab a few years later. Mm-hmm. Um, I think you've come a long way. You are in multiple states California, Oregon, Washington, anywhere else? Uh, making wine in um, uh, south of France with Charles Beeler. Okay. Shatter. All right. Make wine in Argentina for the show. Um, so those are both super fun projects. Okay. So let, let's let's talk about that a little. Um, you're working with eight, ten varietals? Today? Yeah. Um, yes. I, I don't never count them that way. I'd have to get out all my fingers. Well, I looked at, you know, on the website, I looked at all the wines, yeah. and there's a Pinot Gris, there's a Pinot Noir, there's a Zinfandel, there's a Cab, there's, um... You're right, nine. Nine? I had to get all fingers going here. All right, so we popped it. We're going to taste a few wines during the show. We're going to talk about the uh, Cab at the end of the show, but one of the wines we popped open was an interesting wine that you're making in Oregon, a Pinot Gris. Yeah. Tell me quickly how long you've been making it, how it came about. Uh, this would be our seventh vintage or eighth vintage, uh, yes, because this is the 2018 Willamette Valley, so it's a blend of uh, about six different vineyards from around Willamette Valley. Pinot Gris, um, you know, uh, it's it's to me, it's obviously the signature grape of Willamette Valley. What I like in the style that we're doing is we put it into, of course, our winemaking style, which is a little bit more acid in the wine. Um, the viscosity of Pinot Gris is it's heavy. It's Pinot Grigio. So we like to get a little more acid to help balance it out, make it a little more food-driven. 2018 is a, is a cool vintage, and Willamette Valley is cool, so there's a little bit of a greenness to it, which is really satisfying. It's like a great little lime green to mm. it. Um, but it has all of the pear and peach blossom and the sweet notes that you find in Pinot Grigio, plus the viscosity and the weight of the wine. So a couple things. Let's remind people that Pinot Gris is Pinot Grigio. Yeah. We all have friends that either their wife or their husband drinks it, and you know the other spouse says, "Ugh." So if that person wants to get their spouse, sibling, whatever, to drink a good Pinot Grigio, Pinot Gris yep. in Oregon, 
And this is like you described. It's got good acidity, which is good for food. It's a nice full-bodied wine. It's not that lemon juicy, thin, you know, Pinot Grigio. So we're recommending people uh, to try this. Uh, what's a good pairing? What's the classic? Mm, man, for this, I mean, anything that has acid in it, this would be like, you know, if you're having a salad or if you're having a piece of sautéed fish or um, for that matter, I mean, this has like appetizers written all over it, olives, baguettes, pizza. Right. Um, it's pretty diverse that way. Well, you know, but I like the style like this. It reminds me of some of the northern Italian Pinot Grigios. You know, you can buy. They're fairly inexpensive A little in the cooler, store. right? Yeah, those? cooler, higher elevation. Yeah. It's got that viscosity, the weight. Yeah, I love those, those wines. Those are some great wines. All right, so at this point, the majority of wines that you're making are what, cabs? Majority, we make half of our production is cabs. Is cabs? Yep. Let's talk about the cab line. How many different cabs are you making? Uh, so we have 815, which is the most We're going to taste line. that yep. for the um, wine. So too. that's our blend from all seven uh, vineyard growing or, you know, uh, appellated areas in California. And then we also have one Napa cab. So Cabernet that comes from up in Howe Mountain, St. Helena, Rutherford, and South Napa. What do we call that? We call that the signature, the winemaker's cab, we, or we, we the call fancy it, schmancy one? We took my first name off. It just says Gott on it. <laughs> okay. Super creative. Soon as we you don't did have that, a chateau. As soon as you took Joel off, it became a very classy wine. You know? Well, we tripled the price. <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, you're entitled to do that. Um, and the best-selling is... Is it the 815? 815 cab and the Soviet block. Those are our two. Now... Give me a ballpark. Nothing specific. The price range on the eight fifteen is eighteen to twenty dollars. Yeah. So tell people what you're getting for an eighteen twenty dollar bottle of wine. It could sit next to a more expensive wine. And we like to think so. So we blind taste well, against no, wine. I'm telling you. Twice, so tell twice, me why. Twice its price. Um, it's all about diversification of fruit in our winemaking style. Sarah's winemaking style is about blending, and this wine has fruit that is grown in Napa, Sonoma, Lake, Mendocino counties mm. in the north. And in the south, we have uh, the Lodi region area called Borden, also in Monterey County, small amount, <coughs> but then in San Luis Obispo County, Paso Robles, and Santa Barbara County. Wow. Um, so we've got this huge, diverse growing area. In each one of those vineyards, there is 68 different fermentations in this wine. So those are all small little tanks fermented, kept on their own, and then blended together over the next year and a half to create the wine. Can you think of any wine in that price range that goes through all those uh, ruminations? I unfortunately don't think that in our price range there's many people doing that. Yeah, I mean, which is a tribute to the type of wine that But there is. are, you know, there's... You know, I never want to throw anybody into the bus, but there's We're some, not. There's some great wines in in that. They're they're a little harder to find. Right. Um, what was the compulsion after making wines in California to move out? Were you ADD? You had, you had your sea legs and said we could do this anywhere. Um, I was with Elisa, who's our head winemaker, and Elisa really, really wanted to do a project somewhere else. And we were, of course, talking about the same thing. We both wanted to go up and do something in Willamette Valley. Did um, somebody come to you or you went and looked? We went on a fishing expedition. You did. So it yeah. wasn't like, hey, I got an idea. Would you like to try? You, yeah. you went and, yeah. you know, specked it out. And Correct. And then we went out and sold it to somebody. Wait, so let's go backwards. So what year was that? Uh, 2008 was the initial looky-loo. 2010 was the vintage. 
Okay, and then you said you developed that and sold it? So we developed it. We made, uh, I don't even remember, it was like 1,800 cases of Pinot Gris. Um, but I knew that like, you know, it was an uphill battle trying to sell it. So I just went and I found one retailer that would buy it all. So then I could deliver the whole enchilada. It was like one quick delivery and okay, we're in the business. It worked well. <laughs> you know, it's funny because I, I think to this day, and I don't think people can imagine, um, you know, how successful the operation is, how much wine you make, the diversity and all of that. The funny thing is, let's talk about staff. I mean, how many people make up Joel Gau Wines? So we're pretty unique in the industry. We are 25 people. Um, those 25 people are all production people. Well, I mean, we've got a couple support staff, but it's literally, there's no sales, there's no marketing. Um, our partners, uh, Trunquero. So in 2009, the guy that runs Trunquero, Bob Torgelson, proposed this uh, relationship to where we would just make wine because we're not good at distributing, accounting, packaging, any of that stuff. We like to focus on winemaking. So his view was is, they're a huge organization. They're really well run. They're efficient. They could do all of the heavy lifting. We just make the wine. We delivered finished wine to them, and it's a you know it's a match made in heaven. So you never strayed from that hmm. path I mean, since two thousand and nine. You stayed with the core. Yeah, and in two thousand up to two thousand and nine, we'd started to hire salespeople. We'd hired we a did general manager. We'd hired accountants. I mean, it was a nightmare. It's not what I should be running. Um, and so Trincaro has been this amazing relationship. And they have a lot of clout and yes. good distribution and amazing purchasing power and organization right. Which and is reporting. And because you're at the level where you need all the proper considerations. Oh, God, could you imagine trying to do it on your own? <laughs> I, I don't know how you got this far. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> quite honestly, I mean, the, the, that's the story. I mean, that's what's mm-hmm. interesting about this. You know, the growth, the quality, the amount of wine you make, the diversity of varietals and all that. I mean, that, that's the terrific story. Um, what, what was the compulsion to make, you know, a high-end wine? Is that something everyone has to do at some point? Like every psalm has to become a winemaker. Thomas Pastishak has his thing up in uh, yeah. Finger Lakes. Raj Pars in Santa Barbara. Larry Stone. I mean, is that like you have to winemakers have to have a fancy wine um in so the reason we started making napa cab is because we put a lot of napa cab in 815 so it is literally the byproduct of making 20 dollar wine is 60 dollar wine so, so that, we take out some of the favorite barrels and tanks for that right um tell me a little about pinot noir is that an oregon thing uh well primarily it's california but we also make uh okay pinot up in oregon Two totally different styles. The California one is more uh, bigger, rounder, softer, fruit-forward, depth style. The um, Pinot from Willamette Valley in Oregon is more classical, Burgundian-like. Right. The California description sounds good because a lot of California Pinots are like Dr. Pepper, Red, Bright, and all that. So both are good. No, this is 75% of that fruit's from Santa Barbara, from like the Santa Rita Hills area. Yeah, and so you get, but you get big structure and then we've got sweeter fruit that comes from the lower part of monterey you know um by king city san lucia highlands area right so you get the sweet fruit that kind of the punch and one last thing washington when and why 
Uh, and what? Be- because Charles Beeler and Charles Smith were up there making they're, wine. They're kings of Washington. Yeah. And so they drug me along on some expedition fishing trip, and I found Riesling up there, and then I found a Cablin, and then we started making Gruner Veltlinger all 200 All those great cases. varietals. Oh, yeah. Gruner's my favorite. And we probably tape a $10 bill to every bottle we, I mean, there's it, no way to make money. Charles but, Kung Fu is just yeah. a great, you know, value. Yeah, yeah that's um, a great one. And I'm sure you're making some good stuff up there. So they were a big influence. Oh, yeah. They got you into those varietals. Correct. And how is that going? I mean, is that you're committed to that? It's the Yes. The growth in yeah. cases. So and, we don't make Riesling up there anymore. We just make a cab blend. Um, so it's Washington Red Blend. Which Washington's yeah. famous for their yeah. big cab blends. And then we also make a Gruner Vellinger from Washington. Nice. And Willamette Valley, we make Pinot, Pinot Gris in 100 cases of Sauvignon Blanc. So that's the way everything breaks down. Correct. All right. Um, tell me this, because I think you fall into both of these things. What's the difference between making a wine and making a brand? And I don't know. I think maybe you're both. I don't know how to answer that. Um, we do you understand the question? Yeah. Okay. Well, I'm, I didn't say that in a condescending no, no. way. It's like, hey, you know, like, but how do you how do you interpret that? Because we discussed for the last forty minutes, you know, making the wines, but there's a brand thing now, and the brand all happened by accident. <clears throat> the brand to me is history. Um, it's our history that's created the brand. You know, we named the winery by mistake, Joel Got Wines. I didn't have time time to change the government form, and I didn't have a great name like Quintessa or something. <laughs> um, uh, I made the label as a temporary label on an 11 and a half piece of paper. Well, it's, a, it's a sparse, yeah. you know, classic label. because I, I gave it to Tina Fakar on a, on a piece of printer paper and said, put my name here, the variety I, there, and all that government stuff at the bottom. <laughs> I, I think there's no regrets. Um, so... You are a brand and you're making wine. You're okay with all of that. Yeah. Okay. The, the, the most exciting part, I would say, about our business today is the diversification of all of our grip growers and the young, talented winemaking staff that we have spread out everywhere. They're really, it's like, without the sum of people, it doesn't work. Yeah. That's, that's kind of a nice way to end it because that's really what it is. Um, we have a thing called the wine list. I ask all my uh, guests five questions. You're subjected to that. But before we Great. do that, let's talk about two couple other things. Um, Gotts Roadside Stand, you're up to what, six, seven of them? Seven. You're in the Napa Valley. You're in San Francisco. You're in... Walnut what? Creek, Marin, right. Palo Alto. Right. So, yeah. We're, and we're you lucky. see expansion on a calculated basis? Yeah, I think we can grow and not lose what we have if we grow one every maybe year and a half, two years. So what you have, explain that. I know what it is because yeah. I've been eating there for years. But, you know, what's the big deal? Why are we talking about this? What do you have there? I mean, there are certain things, whether it's the potatoes or the meat or, you know, what is it that's there? We are, uh, for if you, know, if you had to describe it on the quick explanation, we are a roadside food stand we're known for burgers, fish, salads. Um, and what I've learned in that business over the last 20 years is it's the size of our menu that makes it appealing, right? There's great stuff out here like Shake Shack, but it's a pretty narrow menu. This is a massive menu. 
And so that you can bring your vegetarian friend, you can bring your fish only eating friend, you can just have a salad or you can have like some ahi tuna burger. Yeah, or an impossible burger. Right. Or, you know. But you didn't talk about quality. I think, you know, the- we've been lucky that when we got started, we weren't price concerned. So we go quality first. Price is never a communication. We don't, we never, we're never going to win a pricing war. Right. So the only war we want to win is quality. Like, how. So that was from the beginning. Yeah. What farmer can we buy what from and how can we serve it? I mean, it sounds silly, but, you know, like we'll shift different corn growers three or four times during corn season to make grilled Mexican corn, street corn. We geek out on everything. We look at like our falafel, right? You know, like. How, where in organic are those ingredients from? How are we going to make it? We, um, you know, like our chicken is all Mary's chicken, which is a local chicken company, which I think is incredible. Uh, fish is better than sushi grade for ahi. I mean, but just we geek out on every little piece of it, and we've got an amazing team that can manage it all. So you just set yourself up to ask me this question. Yes. Why and when will that carry through to the wines? People are very specific about organic food, yeah, and then yeah. they drink mega purple shit wines and yeah. all that. Um, well, that's why, like, for my you're own not brand. not doing it. We talked about it, but yeah. you know, there's a place you could be, almost like mm-hmm. Gots. Well, that's like on my own wine. That's why I love the idea of being able to say this is 78 percent organically grown Sauvignon Blanc from the San Ynez Valley, right? I mean, to me, the, that's the win, and we're years away from that because but of the, moving that direction, correct? And the whole industry is going to go that way. Yeah, we, well, we have to. Well, some people are in less of a rush than others. It's less important, you know, and that's what worries me. But, but if you ask any of the guys that are or girls that are making great quality wine, they will tell you the wine, grapes make the wine, right? Right. No, no matter how fancy your chateau is or how great your basket press is, it's all about the farming and the grapes. So in that aspect, the more naturally grown your grapes are, the better quality, the less input you have to do into it. Labor is a huge problem. I agree, and I'm glad you brought that yeah. up. I mean, if it's done well in the field, it gets a lot yeah. easier, you know, from then on. And so nobody wants to put a bunch of labor into their vineyards right now because you can't afford it, and it's not a great job. And so it's better, less inputs that you have. All right. Um, two things. Let's do them quickly. You're doing a cool, funky project. What is it, in St. Helena? Correct. Um you took over a famous restaurant, Cindy's Backstreet. Cindy yes. is mustards. Cindy Paulson mustards. Is arguably one of the great restaurants on the, the You French took over that, and, and you took mustards. over a gas station. Yes. And just tell me quickly what you're doing, because if you're up in Napa, this yeah. is a cool destination. So we've got this cool new gas station. It's basically a little eatery within the service bay of a gas station. So, okay. you know, you can get there and get a coffee. You can get an egg sandwich. You can get a sandwich. You can get a, a cookie. But we make everything from scratch, all locally grown grains. So grains grown within 50 miles, milled in Petaluma. Um, all the butter's local. Everything's local. The chocolate's obviously not local, but we try to buy everything we can local. We're trying to make everything over at Cindy's Backstreet, which will open up as a restaurant this coming year. Um, but for now, it's a commissary kitchen. We what, gutted does it. Does it have a name? At this point, no. It's at this just point, the gas station in But Santa if you're Atlanta. in town, just oh, the gas station's called the station. But right, and Cindy's, Cindy's no name yet is has been a commissary but you just said it's going to open as a restaurant yeah it will okay but right now if you're in town come by just knock on the door and get a cookie and then the last thing is you know everybody tries to give it back 
and you started an initiative. Let's talk about that for a minute. Uh, so uh, one of the marketing guys that I work with, Mark Dunley, came up with this amazing idea because he heard us talking about donating time and employee time to the food banks in our local area. So he came up and was like, wow, why don't we try to do something where we can partner with our distributors around the country to donate to their local um, food banks. So it's been an amazing win. I think we've got a, we've got a soft start that has gone beyond great. So I'm hoping that over the next couple of years, we can build this into something dramatically beneficial to local food banks throughout the country. Uh, there's a name to it. Tell oh, yes. everyone. Got for good. Got for good. G-O-T-T for good. Um, and keep an eye out for that. Have you set up websites or anything for that? All that stuff's just happening. We went out okay. just to our distributors and said, hey, do you guys want to partner so on this? So it's very young. Yeah. All right. We'll and stay it, on top of that and we'll uh, let people know. All right, Joel, nobody leaves the studio without answering our wine list. Our wine list is a set of five questions. We ask everyone the same five questions. Be spontaneous. Don't dwell on any of this. Don't get nervous. Uh, The first question is, what are you drinking now? And that's in the context of... What are you trying? What's in your fridge? Are you changing for the seasons? I've been what are you fixating on? 2018 <clears throat> Veneca Veneca Sauvignon from Northern Italy. Okay, it's really that's, tasty. Wait, 2018 what? Sauvignon 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 Blanc. Blanc. They call it Sauvignon. But what Veneca? Veneca Veneca, which is in that's an, the maker. That's the brand. Yeah. V I N I C A. Correct. Veneca. Okay. Because we post all this. Yeah. yeah. No, you we want. I it. didn't tell everyone. We'll po- uh, we post your. Um, Answers and we'll post the wine. I first you. got it at Union Square Wine Shop. Is it, do I say that name right? Union Square yeah. Wine Shop, the big one? Yeah, downtown, yeah. right yeah. off the square. Yeah, it's great. All right, anything else? Um, I've been drinking, um, a, this time of the year, I end up drinking a lot of our own Sauvignon Blanc because we're blending that right now. Um, the other thing I've been drinking a lot of, which I saw you on the list here, Patrick Pugh's Chablis. I think bang for the buck. Great Amazing. bang for the buck. The 16s taste great right now. 17s a little green and tight. Give it time. Um, all right, Fa- this is the goofiest question. Do you have a favorite wine and food? What? I you have one another more. one. One more. You're allowed. Stone Crop Sauvignon Blanc from New Zealand. Stone I, Crop is the maker. I have to. Two or one word. I buy it here in New York and ship it to California. You can't get it out there? It's not for sale out there. It's awesome. Uh, so there you go. Stone Sorry. Crop Sauvignon. Charles Beeler turned me on to that, yeah. What? Give me a price point on that. 16 18 Oh, bucks. okay. So it's a I great. buy two point. That's a great value. All right, give me your give me Joel Gott's favorite wine and food pairing. Not something you eat every week, every month, but when you think about, gee, delicious wine with delicious food that just makes you go ooh ah, and you'll eat it a few times a year. What's what's a good match? I would say because of the bakery, I've been eating a lot of bread and pretzels and baked stuff lately. And I've really gotten into like the Chablis slash yeasty bread. Like there's a really weird balance between. So the Chablis two. and yeasty bread. Yeah, yeah. That okay, weird. I like that. And actually, it was pretzels last week. We've been trying to make pretzels. So soft, hard, both. Soft, soft. Always okay. Soft, yeah. So that the whole lie and all that. Yeah, thing yeah, yeah. No, it's good. I want to make them baguette size. That would be my goal at the gas station that we'd have them this summer. Would be big old pretzels. Well, you're not the first guy doing it. I right. mean, there's pretzel breads everywhere, but yeah, yeah, it sounds like a good idea. All right, so that's a good one. Um, <clears throat> favorite wine restaurant and or bar in the context of who really handles wine well, good no- wine knowledge, selection. You can go, it would be fair to name a place or two in Napa and then any place outside of there that you know catches your attention. 
Um, okay, so in Napa, I love the old wine list at Press. I think okay. that is exceptional. Who's doing that? Uh, Press, which is owned by Leslie Rudd right. um, family. Right. Leslie passed away. They've got an old, so you can go in there and was drink. That, who was the, the psalm there? It was somebody. Um, yeah, his name. Ah, yeah, Scott. Don't wor- I can't think don't of Scott's worry last about name. It. All right, um, so Press. Press. Good food, great wine, great attention to wine. Go there and have 79 Cayman Special Select, and your head will pop out. 74 Heights? So, yeah. No, they'll have 74 Heights. What um, what else? Can you name something else? Um, I like the wine program at uh, Mini Nashi in Napa. He's got amazing mezcal, uh, a great bar program, and a really good eclectic European wine collection. Nice. I think that's pretty fun. Um, also, are there any wine bars? Just as wine bars, that no, are- there's uh, there's Verju in San Francisco, which is super right. hot right now, which I would go to. Yeah, um, Cook Tavern, a little t- not Cook Tavern, Cook, which is a little teeny forty seat restaurant in downtown San Elena. Chef owner, chef is in the kitchen. It's what's awesome. it called again? Cook, Cook. Um, That's a good one. And he has a good collection of local cabs, like Crocker and Star, and nice. he's just got a great local small selection. T and B Trincaro Napa Valley's got a, always an amazing yeah. five wines on their list. Um, I would ask you New York, but I think you've been here three times your whole life. No, 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 no. But like, you, sure, I love the wine service here. I mean, it's incredible. Yeah, there's a lot of great places. All right, can you tell me? Do you have a favorite all-time wine? Now, let me. When I constructed that question. I was waiting to hear the rarest, most expensive wine anybody drank. It's become experiential and what became important to them. Here's the wine I got married to. This is the first yep. Burgundy. What's an important wine to you, you know, throughout your lifetime? Uh, or a you, couple. I mean, I got stuff. I love old wine, like old Napa Valley stuff. And it's not very expensive. Like I was saying, 79 came as a special select, I think, is out of this world. That's um, not expensive? Uh, you know, you can, you'd be surprised. It's pretty. Versus some Bordeaux and Burgundy. Yeah, like mid 90s CVs wines. Um, CV from Con Valley. Um, again, not crazy expensive. Some of Kathy Corson's older wines I think are super fun to drink. Kathy's going to be on the show in a couple of weeks. She's amazing. Yeah. Um, you like the Con Valley stuff? I like Con Valley, yeah. Yeah, I have a bunch of, I was on the mailing list for years. I have a bunch of older stuff. Yeah, 90s. 97 out there. I have 97 in a Magnum. I would drink it because what happened is is 97 um, throughout Napa Valley was it was a warm, really ripe year, right? And so what happened is those wines are tending to fall apart. For whatever reason, the wines out of that sliver of Con Valley, which is an offshoot of Napa, don't have that overcooked, overripe flavor right now. They haven't overaged. So let's school people a little because... We definitely have a lot of Napa lovers and collectors. So the 97 was a big, bountiful vintage with decent weather. But it's it's you should start drinking it now. I would drink it now. And con because of the climate and where it's at is okay. Um, Okay, I want to answer your question, but yeah, like I I, I remember meals and wine and where I was. I had a bottle of of Didier Dagno actually makes one Sancerre. It's got the black label. Sarah and I had a bottle of the 2014, and it was mind-blowing. Every other bottle I've had has never been like that. Really? 2013 Ravenel, I had blind. I didn't know what it was, but it was just like 
unbelievable liquid in a glass. I couldn't believe it. Oh, and Ravenos. Then, He's right. got it down cold. But then I, but then I've bought, I've paid out of my nose to get other ones, and I'm like, oh, Paul Vassad and Ravenos. Yeah. Those guys rule it. Um, all right, so those are good ones. Here's the last question, and I think you should be able to handle this, and I think we may keep it in the context of the Got World. <clears throat> the question is, recommend the best wine around 15 to 20 bucks, a red and a white. Before you answer it, the setup is, I have kids in their 20s. Mm-hmm. They can't show up at a party now with a $9, $11 bottle of shitty wine. They can't afford 30 40 so they want a wow in that 15 to 20 range. Not so, from me, right? No, I want, let's do both, okay? okay? So 15 20 bucks, best ops in the got world for red and the white. It's hard to look past, so, so $15. No, 15 18 20 yeah. 21 no, no, I was just going to say it's hard to look past like our Oregon Pinot. I think bang for the buck. You really can't. Like, How much that, is it? Uh, 22, 24. Okay, so that, that. So got Oregon Pinot for the red. Where do you go white? Uh, white, I would probably say as even cheaper at $12, $14 is our Sauvignon Blanc. Okay. Bang for the buck. When you look at what's in a store, that one I think over delivers, and I drink them blind all the time. And I wouldn't say that if I didn't think. So I don't even want to venture out to other makers. But if we talk about best value red, best value white, what are varietals? Obviously Sauvignon Blanc on the white side. If if I'm if I'm buying in that range, I'm looking at Sauvignon Blanc, Shannon Blanc, Riesling, Muscadet. Uh, we don't no. have. A, we remember you're on the east, so you right, have a right, much right, better right. selection than we okay. do. I'm just thinking like what I see at the store. I would go for you know those type like Shannon Blanc. I think are hip and cool and Very young cool. and sub twenty bucks. I, I agree. Worst case scenario, you buy a bad one, you don't buy that, and you buy them from South Africa. They're incredible. Um, and the Loire, of course. What about yeah. red? Red, um, I think Zinfandel, the cool kids are drinking it again. So I would lean towards like an inexpensive bottle of Bedrock Zinfandel. Good maker. Um, Morgan Peterson, yep. amazing There's some job. good guys making some good juice. Yeah, yeah. Yep. Those are good ones. And like I said earlier, we'll post your wine list answers. And we, um, we end the show with a segment called the Weekly Wine Sip where we taste and evaluate a wine. I asked you to bring wines in. We talked a little about the Pinot Gris. Let's quickly, <clears throat> I got a little tickle. Let's quickly talk about the Cabernet that you brought in. Sure. 2017, um, warmer vintage, Northern California. This is uh, seven different counties, growing areas. Um, it's a blend of... So this is the Joel Gott 815? Correct. 815 okay. is my daughter Lucy's birthday, August 15th. Okay, I'm glad you remembered. Um, or maybe this forces you to remember. No, no, no. I know I know <laughs> okay. really well. Okay. Um, all right, so this is the 17. Is this the current vintage or the 18 is out too? Current vintage. We're blending the 18 right now, but what I look for is just the density of this wine. All right, let's let, we're going to do... You have to stick with us. Oh, this yes, is the sir. Grape Nation evaluation. All right, we're going to give it a sniff first, and then we throw it over the tongue. We'll talk about it. So on the uh, nose, what are we getting on the nose? To me, I get a lot of that, like, sweet... You know, there's a sweetness to Cabernet that it has. It also... Um, I have a little bit of a, like a spice to it. I can get a lot of the barrels out of that. There's a lot of American oak, so it's toasty, a little marshmallowy. Yep, I agree with all of that. 
What about color? Color. It's it's not super deep, mm-hmm. you know, brooding like yeah. purple. Seventeen hot vintage. That's, Is that yeah. that indicates you know how the color would come mm-hmm. out? You know, it's a beautiful, clear, you know, deep claret. Um, how about mouthfeel? I feel like the first thing I notice on it is is the sweet entry. It has a lot of that like candied, you know, uh, dark fruits, black, um, which I like a lot. But it also finishes with quite a bit of acid and a soft tannin structure. You keep saying sweet, and that could um, scare people away. Mm. But I think a lot of people realize they like that sweetness made well and this you know so all of our wines are dry we don't have any residual sugar but when i say sweet i mean fruit expression no i that's why i'm saying in a good way Mm -hmm. i think you know people like that um but americans are not scared of sweeten right i mean you know that's why some of the most popular wines prisoners blended wines you know have some residual sugar um all right last thing palate does the palate replicate what you get on the nose what do you in get on the palate? Wine. Yeah. I get more on the palate of this is dark fruit and chocolate and and the tannin structure. I get more of the f- sweeter fruit on the nose. Definitely chocolate. Uh, the tannins are pretty smooth. Uh, dark fruits. Mm-hmm. Very nice. Um, let's talk about what you'd pair this with. How about carne asada tacos? Okay. <laughs> or the pizza that we ate out here. Pizza, at Roberta's, yeah, yeah. obviously good steak, good burger, all that stuff. Um, but it's got good acidity, so it's a good food wine. Um, we like this wine. You're happy the way it came out? Yeah. Okay. All right, so that is the 2017 Joel Gott 815 Cabernet Sauvignon. This is one of your more popular wines. Yes, it's, the it's, most. It's pretty readily available. Correct. So we're talking about a wine, great price to value, drinks well, available. All right, Joel, we have to wrap up. I want to thank you for coming in. Just have to do a couple of closing notes. Um, if you have a question, suggestion, wine happening, or event, hit me up at sam at thegrapenation.com. That's sam at thegrapenation.com. Subscribe to the Grape Nation podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your pods. Follow us on Facebook at The Grape Nation. On Instagram, this is a little trickier, we're at SBenRuby. On Twitter, we're at BenRuby. But you can always use the hashtag TheGrapeNation and everything will pop up. As I mentioned earlier, we'll post Joel's wine list answers and I'll post the wines that we drank today and anything else that we mentioned um, on our social media sites. Joel, if people want to find out more about Joel Got Wines... On social media, social media, you know, the is it Instagram, web. Facebook yep. pages, all, all of it. Everything's that Joel got. Correct. Okay. What about you? Do you? Uh, My social media. Yeah, I am horrible at social. You're media. You're a luddite. Yes. All right. So just, I got chisel. Okay. So just stick with uh, chisel. Hey, that's a new <laughs> app. So just stick with uh, uh, at Joel got for wines to see what they're doing. Joel, thanks for coming in. Um, thank you for making the trek out to Brooklyn. It was worth it, right? Yeah, it's great. Get a little Roberta's pizza, pizza, drink yeah. a little wine. Frank Barbara Gallo, thanks for bringing, bringing Joel in. Um, thank you to our engineer, Matt, and everyone at the Heritage Radio uh, Network. I'm Sam Ben Ruby, and you've been listening to The Grape Nation. Mm-hmm. 
The Grape Nation is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. And thanks for listening.